I liked your metaphor of the enemy is in retreat. We need to drive them over the hill and down the other side, the enemy. And that means any energy that we spend fighting each other is energy not spent fighting the yeah. enemy. The enemy is climate change. And the we is the climate community. Those of us who've been in the trenches fighting this beast for decades in some cases. But sometimes we do need to fight each other because sometimes people do unconstructive or disingenuous things. And who's to determine which things are constructive and ingenious and which are the opposite? Me or today's guest, Eli Mitchell Larson? Neither, obviously, but I do think today's show will at least help you understand one of the key critical issues that has been completely messed up in a lot of news coverage, namely the false choice between supporting activities that reduce emissions now so they don't get into the atmosphere in the first place and removing them once they're there. We have to do both, but they are different. And the fact is, there's no easy answer. And anyone who tells you there is doesn't understand the question. We're dealing with a messy challenge, a wicked problem, as they call it in policy circles. Wicked problems are, by definition, a complete mess because they are symptoms of other problems which are in turn nebulous, contradictory, and constantly shifting. The only thing we can all really agree on at this point is that to meet the climate challenge, we must eliminate those emissions that we can eliminate and then find ways to suck the rest out of the atmosphere, getting to net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. So how do we do that? We need to run this grand experiment in order to ensure that we'll have these solutions ready. I think we're gambling if we're not putting all of these arrows into our quiver and making sure that we have something to do with those last gigatons as we get closer and closer to 2045 and we just really need to be at net zero emissions by mid-century or we're going to have you know, no hope of keeping warming below really dangerous levels. Until last year, all but a few of us seemed to be on the same page. Focus on reductions now while building up removals, because every ton that escapes now has to be sucked out later. Then early last year, Microsoft and a gaggle of other technology companies inadvertently kicked over a hornet's nest when they announced they would no longer offset their emissions by supporting activities that help others reduce, but only by supporting activities that remove gases from the atmosphere. Carbon markets weren't ready for this because they've been focused on activities that both reduce emissions and remove gases by saving forests and shifting to climate-smart agriculture, among other things. The debate over reductions and removals has been raging since the late 1980s. Should our dysfunctional relationship with nature be approached as a source of greenhouse gas emissions that needs to be eliminated or as a way of flipping our impact from being a source to being a sink? In actual fact, it's both. And the real question to me is whether we risk letting emissions run rampant now by putting too much emphasis on future removals or whether the opposite is true and an emphasis on reductions will leave removals on a back burner. There is this kind of zeitgeist around removals and maybe it's because we're nerds and we're here, we're like operating in a certain group of folks. I definitely have seen that happen over the last year. And I think 
it's causing some corporate buyers to get a little nervous and to say, what are we missing here? Do we need to just be buying removals? And I think there's more nuance to it than that. And we definitely don't want to create more of a scarcity mindset or this um, fear of zero sum. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And it's a question central to the debate over how best to suck greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere while also reducing emissions right now. Today's guest, Eli Mitchell Larson, is a self-proclaimed carbon removal evangelist who contributed to the Oxford Offsetting Principles, which came out last year, and aimed to summarize the current thinking on how offsetting can be used to accelerate the race to net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. In a nutshell, the principles say we should focus on reducing our own emissions and use offsets to zero out those emissions we can't eliminate. They also say that, over time, the offsets we buy should focus more and more on removing carbon from the atmosphere and not just helping others reduce. And we should try to make sure those removals are permanent. He's currently helping set up a new organization called Carbon Removal Advocacy Europe, or CRAE, C-R-A-E, which aims to promote the growth of removals in the UK and Europe. I met Eli last year through the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, and we were coming at this issue of reductions and removals from different angles, and I thought we'd end up having more of a debate on today's show than a discussion. Instead, we had a discussion with a few little points of disagreement that serves as a sort of reductions and removals 101. We agree on the substance, which is important, and the areas where we disagree are in the gray zone, the judgment zone. I understand where he's coming from, and he understands where I'm coming from, and hopefully, by sharing in our discussion, you'll come away with a good understanding of the questions we all need to be asking. The first question I asked Eli was how he got into this space. I grew up in Maine, which is you know the extreme northeast corner of the U.S., and I grew up in a 14-acre woodlot that used to be the woodlot for a farm, and so... I could see the kind of remnants of old logging when I was walking through the forest. And Mm. so I had a very kind of nature adjacent upbringing. I loved trees and forests and animals. And that was my whole world. So I definitely had that nature ethos, almost like non-anthropocentrism. Like I might've spent more time with our goats than humans (laughs) or something. So Uh I had a kind of unconventional childhood in that sense. But I think my kind of climate spark was really ignited 
in a more scientific sense with my discovery of paleoclimatology and this discover of ancient climates, because I think I've always been someone who's in awe of large things, particularly mm-hmm. time spans and just the immense eons that our planet has gone through and all the changes that it's gone through and the incredibly bizarre oscillations of conditions, the different life forms that have adapted throughout and the stories that you can learn, which are more exciting than any video game or blockbuster. It's like the fact that these archaea bacteria almost adapted to start engineering the atmosphere in their own image and changing from anoxic conditions to oxic conditions or anyway. So learning that you could uncover these stories with something as minute as the slight variations in the concentrations of stable isotopes in plant matter. So I really got into stable isotope geochemistry where, you know, you could literally take a sample of someone's skin and you could determine if they were a vegetarian or not on the basis of the isotopic signature of their carbon. Because if you eat only plants, you resemble a C3 plant. If you eat meat, you basically take on the isotopic signature of corn because most meat eats corn. So it's just examples like that. The fact that we can do similar things with ice cores, with corals, with deep sea cores, and we can use that to uncover ancient history long before an instrumental temperature record. That just filled me with so much excitement and awe and fascination (laughs) and really just the way that geology and geophysics, all of it works. The fact that these tiny oscillations in the, the obliquity or the eccentricity of the Earth's orbit can kick into motion and then be magnified by the biological system and swing the climate into different states. It's just so fascinating. It's so powerful. It's a set of knowledge that every school child should be armed with some piece of. And I think that's another thing that I think is so important is like getting basic understanding of the world around you into curricula rather than just the conventional sciences. So anyway, that was my journey. And then ever since I've wanted to work in climate, but it does for me come from a place of bemoaning the loss of things that took so long to develop, just respecting the millions and millions of years that it took for all of this incredible plant and animal and fungal life around us to evolve. And the fact that we're just snuffing it out on a yearly basis, nothing like hurts me more emotionally. And so that's why I'm fighting this battle. That's why I won't do anything except fight for the environment for the rest of my life. And um, Yeah, but it's also fun. (laughs) It's dark, but it's also fun to think about these things. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating and infuriating and insomnia-inducing. We've all had nightmares. (laughs) Wake up in the middle of the night going, oh my God, but I'm hopeful right now. We'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, shift into that now because it's interesting that you and I are coming at this from different angles. I focus on solutions that involve nature, you focus on removals more broadly, engineered, nature-based, everything else. Maybe we can start by just breaking out the types of removals. Yeah. Some people talk about nature-based, hybrid, and engineered solutions. I would even say there's nature-mediated capture. Like, did photosynthesis, did a plant help you take the CO2 out of the air, or did you do it using a geochemical process or using an engineered solution? Just yeah, different yeah ways this of- whole issue of what is a technology and what's a practice. But the, the importance of increasing removals to cool the planet is something I haven't really covered enough on this show. And I'm wondering if you could talk about why yeah. you think we need to focus on that. I think removals, carbon removal and storage, re- removing carbon and then storing it safely somewhere it serves a couple purposes. One of them is the one you're alluding to, but it also serves some sort of intermediate purposes. So 
carbon removal is really the only way of neutralizing some emissions that you don't have any other thing to do with. People talk about hard to abate sectors. Expensive to abate really should be what we call them, not hard to abate, because mm-hmm. you can do anything. Yeah. It's just at what cost. So there are some emissions that we just don't currently have a way to deal with, and that might be sort of long-haul aviation, cement, steel. And, and I think when people get worried about the moral hazard of carbon removal, they forget that we're not saying we're locking in place what's hard to abate or what's expensive to abate. The things that are expensive to abate will change over time as yeah, technology yeah. changes. That's great. But we already know today there are some emissions that we're putting into the air year after year from technologies and, and activities that we don't have any alternative for. Mm-hmm. So those we can start removing right away. We don't have to wait. We can reduce right, where right. we can, but we can start removing those right away. So that's the first use of removals. It's a way of balancing and neutralizing emissions that you don't have any other immediate way of dealing with. Mm-hmm. And that, even in 2050, there may be quite a few of those still. The other thing that removals lets you do is it lets you neutralize and balance emissions that no one's taking responsibility for. So I fully agree. If someone can make an energy efficiency improvement on their house, if they can switch to a lower carbon fuel, do it. That's what we need to be doing. Those are emission reductions. But think about this. What happens when certain parts of, of the, the planet, the biosphere, start to burp up more carbon than they're sucking down. Right. And that's the fear we have with the tropical forest sinks, with methane clathrates, with permafrost. If that happens, who's going to raise their hand and say, sorry, those were my emissions? No one is. And so we need a, an ability to counteract those emissions because they're just as scary as the emissions that come out of a smokestack. And by the way, they're our fault because they, they happen because of warming. So I think That's the second use of removals. And the third use of removals is what you alluded to, which is restoring the climate. Okay, great. We got to a net zero state, but now what? We might want to turn the thermostat down and say, we'd like to restore the atmosphere back to the state that it used to be, just like we would restore a forest or or any site where we made a mess. We would clean up that mess. Mm -hmm. So removals give us that option of restoring the atmosphere to a safer state that is going to be safe for humans and non-human animals, you know, plants, I've, everyone. I focused almost exclusively on that nature-based solutions in this show, and I want to continue to do that. But I do think it's important to at least explain to people how these fit into the whole mosaic that's emerging. Can you maybe elaborate on the different types of CDR and, and how we you know, should compare them and evaluate them? Absolutely. And I think this is the part of carbon removal that's so exciting and can capture mm-hmm. the imagination. It's just the very broad range of ideas and solutions, some of which we haven't come up with yet. New ones keep arising. It's quite engaging. There's different ways to break it up. So I think there's seven categories I can run through now, but other people might divide it up differently. Yeah. So the, the point is, there are solutions that are typically referred to as nature-based solutions, and those are super important. Those include things like forestation. And we can we, that basically means planting trees where there weren't any. And either mm-hmm. there weren't any trees there for a very long time, in which case we call it afforestation, which is a slightly controversial practice because it involves mm-hmm. putting a forest somewhere where there hasn't been one in a long time or ever, versus reforestation, which is to say, let's restore a forest that was uh, destroyed at some point in the recent past. So that's super important. That's a, a key pathway for carbon removal. I would say the, the issues there are, have we reduced the risk of non-additionality. That is to say, is the forest that we're growing additional? Would it have grown Mm -hmm. in the absence of human intervention? The second piece is this indirect carbon leakage idea. If we grow a forest in one location, we're taking up useful land that could have been used to grow crops or to harvest timber. So those 
that those pressures go elsewhere. So that's another thing we have to watch out for. And finally, it's this idea of durability. Is the carbon in the forest safe? So if we can mitigate those three things, then planting forests is an incredible tool that we have at our disposal to remove carbon. And it provides so many other non-carbon benefits, right? Mm-hmm. That you talk about in your show in terms of actually preserving ecosystems that people and other life forms need to survive. That's a huge one. So that's a category people leave, lead with. And another nature-based solution, but I don't like this nature versus tech solution because the solution yeah. I'm about to talk about, which is soil carbon, it beats me whether that's natural or, or human mediated, because what we're really talking about is agriculture, yeah. which of course, it, we use 50% of the habitable land surface for agriculture. Is that nature? I mean, we've essentially displaced natural ecosystems to grow food. But in any case, soil carbon sequestration is the practice of restoring carbon to soils, which has been depleted through our agricultural practices. So we can actually do a lot, restore those carbon levels through regenerative agricultural practices. And, and you know, this is good for everyone. This is good for agricultural yields. It's good for soil health. It's good for organisms living in the soil, and it removes carbon. The trick with soil carbon sequestration, and the reason why I think people often consider it a, an emerging carbon removal solution rather than an established one that's ready for scale, is that those questions I talked about with forests around, is this an additional action? Is, this, is there indirect leakage? Is there a risk of the carbon being uh, re-released to the atmosphere if the changed agricultural practices cease? Those are really big questions when it comes to soil carbon that haven't yet been answered with a high degree of certainty. But the promise is there. The, the, it's a very exciting pathway, and it could do a lot. What, do you, what have you felt about uh, soil carbon sequestration? As, a, as an approach, as a tool, I think it's, it's obviously quite valuable. I think where it becomes problematic is when you start getting into offsetting. It goes back to the Chicago Climate Exchange, where you know, they were issuing credits for practices that farmers were already moving to. And I talked to a lot of farmers who will tell me that when they switch to climate-smart agriculture, their yields often increase, and so it pays for itself. The idea of quantifying the values and maybe having it paid in, in a subsidy or having it stamped as the product of climate-smart agriculture makes sense because anything that we can additionally do that will encourage it and support it makes sense to me. The one place where I think there is an argument for for using offsets in soil carbon is one of my first shows was I ever did was on the Livelihoods Fund in rural Kenya where I had or an NGO called VI Agroforestry was working with thousands of small farmers in Kenya and Uganda trying to help them to shift to agroforestry for the benefit of improved yields and also improving the soil and also reducing carbon, just it was basically a sustainability-oriented organization. And they faced a perennial um, fundraising challenge. And so they got involved in soil carbon back in 2010 or so to raise money through the soil benefit. And then the goal initially was that this money, this funding that they got would pass through to the farmers. When I interviewed the farmers, they laughed at me because they're like, you know, the amount of money that we got for the soil, for the carbon payment, and it was at $10 a ton. So it was a pretty high rate for the market at that point, was minuscule compared to the benefit I got from the increased yields and from the ability to do all these other things. So now what's happened is um, Dannon and these guys have gone in and it's almost like an insetting approach where what they're doing is helping farmers shift to agroforestry. They're using carbon accounting methodologies to generate carbon credits that that then Dan and others are using to offset their own emissions. These 
carbon credits could theoretically enter the market, but they don't. They stay. They just use it to offset their emissions internally, but they're bringing in a degree of validation um, and verification that you don't normally get, that Walmart isn't doing, for example, on their claims to be insetting. And what they're saying is we're not passing the cost through to the farmers. This is the difference. They're not, they're not passing that cost per ton through. They're using it to expand and support their operations, which are in turn helping the farmers. To me, that makes a lot of sense. There's a logical case. You're dealing in a rural economy in a developing country where there, there isn't much else. And they're generating a lot of other ecosystem services. They're improving water quality. And one of the benefits of the agroforestry program that they've initiated is that they've got the trees growing on the land and they use the leaves as silage to feed the cows. And by feeding them the silage, they're actually getting more milk per burp, in a sense. They're reducing the amount of methane per, per gallon of milk that's coming out. And I think they're starting to add in uh, some of this mutual stuff, these supplements that you give cows so they burp less and emit less methane. So it's a way where they're going into a situation, they're helping these little farmers who had very tenuous livelihoods. They're helping them improve their livelihoods. They're helping them get more from the land. They're helping them get more from the cow and helping improve the water. And again, it doesn't work at the individual farm level. It's not There's not enough. It, it, the amount of carbon sequestered in soil You've got to either have a huge farm, in which case you're a massive industrial farmer, uh, or you've got to be operating at a large scale like these guys are. By these guys, I mean VI Agroforestry and Dannon. If you want to learn about the program that I alluded to, check out Episode 7 called Of Milk and Money from 2016. If you want more on Mutral, that's the company that's helping cows burp less, check out Episode 16 called How Garlic, Cloves, and Orange Peels Cut Cow Burps and Slow Climate Change. That's from 2017. This is my sixth season of Bionic Planet, which I've been producing on my own time and dime since the Paris Agreement, when it became clear to me that mainstream media were still ignoring all of the stuff they're trying to learn overnight right now. The one complaint that I've gotten is that I don't generate enough episodes, and that's something you can help me change. If you think I'm doing a good job of translating these technical issues into plain English and putting them into context for you, and you want more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. This way, if I don't manage to generate an episode in a month, you don't get charged. And if I manage to crank out a ton of episodes, you don't get whacked either. The web address again is not the Bionic Planet website, but the Patreon website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. And if you are part of a moral business entity that wants to sponsor the show, or you're a philanthropist who wants to make a larger donation, I'm now fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax-deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer and other contributors, as well as putting in more of my own time. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. And I'll repeat that at the end of the show. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. 
And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Moving back to our discussion, I was wrapping up a long digression on soil carbon. So I guess that's where I stand. I don't see the argument for offsetting with soil carbon in the U.S. because there's enough other ways to do it. I do think having the USDA make some kind of a payment, that makes sense to me. So that's about it. That's yes. my long on the head. I love it. <laughs> that's why no, people it's... don't ask me questions. I go, I'm, I'm the worst. <laughs> no, it's we're on the same page because you've drawn this incredibly important distinction between are you removing carbon so you can package it up as a carbon credit and sell it to someone who then gets to say that they've absolved themselves of some fossil fuel that they burned? Or are you just paying for this outcome? Is the USDA paying farmers to do this and not claiming that they've counteracted some fossil fuel emission? That's a win for everyone, for the farmer, mm -hmm. for the planet. The carbon gets removed, but we don't have to be concerned about the perfect neutralization of a unit of fossil fuel emission with the deposition of carbon into the soil, which, by the way, then you've got to keep there forever. Mm -hmm. Got to make sure that as the land changes hands, the practices are maintained, etc. So I think it's a great pathway, but I think it's one that the case for packaging it into carbon credits is a lot harder. Yep. But I think maybe to take a step back when we're talking about the different carbon removal pathways, rather than kind of going through a list, I mean, there's, there's great resources online, right? There's the CDR primer, there's the research by Sabina Fuss, and others who have done this kind of rundown of the different techniques. I like to just provide a simple framework for how anybody can take any carbon removal idea that they hear and break it down in terms that they can understand and evaluate. And it's quite simple. There's three steps in, with carbon removal, right? The first step is taking the CO2 out of the air. The second step is doing something with that CO2, either turning it into a stable format or transporting it somewhere, basically fixing it into a format that can then be stored. And the third step is storing. So when it comes to the first step, we don't we only have about three options for taking CO2 out of the air. There, there will be more, there probably are others, but the three big ones are, we can let plants do it for us. We can let photosynthesis and, and nature, what nature has itself designed to take the CO2 out for us, and then we'll figure out what to do with that biomass. We can allow geochemical reactions to take place or actually accelerate them. And that's this idea of mineralization using minerals like silicates and, and carbonates to actually uh, absorb, reabsorb CO2 molecules from the air and weather into rocks that can retain the carbon in the long term. And then there's methods of actually, through an engineered method, and there are many different methods, actually physically filter and extract those CO2 molecules from the air using various sorbents, whether it's liquid or, or solid. And these are some of the new engineered solutions that you hear from groups like Climeworks and Carbon Engineering, where they're actually filtering CO2 out of air, bond, bonding it to some, to some chemical, and then regenerating that solvent by, with heat, and then having pure CO2 that you can then siphon off and do something with. That's very rough explanation that there are different ways of taking the CO2 out of the air. And now you've got some carbon. Maybe you've got a tree that you've grown, in which case you decide, does the tree stick around? Are we planting a forest that, and we want the carbon to be stored in the wood itself? Or are we taking that biomass and doing something with it? So for any pathway, you can say, how is the carbon taken out of the air? What mm -hmm. happens to it after? And where is its final resting place? Where does it get stored? Mm -hmm. So we can take any example. We can say structural timber. In that case, the method of capture is the tree. But then the tree is harvested and turned into a, a beam that goes into a, a building, hopefully for 
tens, maybe even hundreds of years. So nature helped us capture the carbon, but we stored it in the human built environment. So I think this way of thinking helps us really reveal that this distinction between nature and technologies is unhelpful because really it's about how did you get the carbon out of the air and then what do you do with it? And this is where, you know, there's all kinds of options that are grouped under this category called biomass carbon removal and storage. The acronym mm -hmm. spells BIKERS. And this means any situation where biology, where a plant or an animal or some organism did the capturing for you, and then you used that biomass in some application and stored it. So one example is biochar. Mm -hmm. You actually burn some organic matter anoxically. So you're pyrolyzing that rather than letting all of the combustion just let the CO2 go back into the air, you're combusting biomass under specific conditions, anoxic conditions. So you do what's called pyrolysis and you end up with a char that's very resistant to the carbon that's locked in it being re-released or being accessible to organisms that would usually biodegrade some biomass. So that's one. But then you can imagine all kinds of interesting options where if you're um, refining biofuels and you've got CO2 that's being released as a byproduct, if you were to capture that CO2 and store it somewhere, then you would have just removed carbon because, of course, the, the, the corn that was used to make the ethanol was taking the CO2 out of the air. And that excess CO2 that you're storing, you've actually generated negative emissions. And then, of course, there's a, a bioenergy with, with carbon capture and storage, BECS. That's where you're taking a biomass, hopefully a waste biomass, right? Because if we're growing virgin forests for the purpose of burning to generate energy, we unlock a whole host of concerns or competing for food production yeah, and yeah. other other uses of that land. But in general, the principle is if we could, you know, combust some waste biomass, let's say, to generate Corn electricity husks, or, yeah, or heat. grass, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and then capture that CO2. So I guess talking about that third module of carbon removal, which is the storage, there are a few different ways of storing carbon, right? There's storing carbon in living biomass. That's the mm -hmm. idea of a standing forest. There's storing carbon geologically, and that's using reservoirs below the surface of the earth, either terrestrially, so onshore or offshore, and putting supercritical CO2, which is a compressed CO2 in a sort of quasi-liquid gaseous state that you mm -hmm. put into the subsurface into specific reservoirs that actually have pore space in the rocks to absorb it. So mm -hmm. I think when people think of geological storage, they often picture like a big cavern underground, like a big empty hole right, yeah. that's being filled up with CO2, like a balloon that could pop. And thankfully, <laughs> that's not what we're doing. We're doing something that has been done for decades, actually, in Norway. And what, what it is, is geologists are able to identify specific reservoirs where the CO2 can fit. And the reason we know that CO2 can, can be stored safely in the subsurface for long periods of time is because when energy companies are exploring for oil and gas, they sometimes come upon pockets of fossil CO2 that was stored under a cap rock and just sitting there until they went in and disturbed it. So we know that like oil, like gas, like coal, CO2 itself can hang out in the subsurface for millennia. And the great thing about some of the formations that we're able to inject CO2 into is that they can actually bond with that CO2 and, and mineralize in such a way that the CO2 is no longer CO2, it becomes part of the rock, it becomes part of the basalt or whatever other formations are available to absorb it, if that's in fact possible. So what, what that means is that over time, the CO2 that you've stored underground becomes less and less at risk of being re-released to the atmosphere. 
So it's an interesting set of solutions because it's potentially quite durable, quite permanent. But of course, unlike above ground storage in trees and soils, it's new to people, right? It's a new technology, it's a new idea, not in the sense that we haven't been doing it, but in the sense that the public hasn't really been aware of it. Yeah. You know, Norway has been doing this for 20 years, but it's not a very well-known project or technology. So I think that's a key piece. And then of course, there's storing carbon in sort of unconventional locations. There's some interesting companies like Running Tide and Ficos, who are actually growing kelp and, yeah. and a lot of the world's Kelps, kelp forests have been uh, depleted, but what they can do is grow kelp offshore and ensure that when it finishes growing and it, it's negatively buoyant and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And so there are ways to ensure that that biomass ends up in a location where it's, for all intents and purposes, completely isolated from our above ground world. You can imagine these macroalgae, these forms of seaweed growing and then sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And if they sink in the right location, they're going to hang out on what's called the abyssal plain for you know, thousands of years, either stay in that water mass, which is completely isolated from the surface with a, quite a significant time lag. So we've got, we've, we'd have plenty of time or they're actually buried under other decaying biomass and they become part of the sediment. So I think, again, the, to make it simple to let someone think through it, it's how did you capture the carbon? Did you do it with a plant, with a mineral? Or, or with engineered technologies, what did you do with it after that? And then where did you store it? And then once you've stored it, you can ask, where's the carbon being stored? How much more room do we have to put carbon in that same location? Is it fine? It's always finite, but is it is there a lot of headroom or not very much? And then finally, how long is it going to stay there? That's the really key piece about carbon removal. Yeah, I've got two, two episodes in the works on both of those, one on kelp and the different approaches and the risks, and another one on harvested wood products and the new engineering techniques that can allow us to build 10-story buildings with wood. Kind of interesting that new engineering approaches are actually part of the whole carbon capture system. Um, and I have to confess, when it comes to carbon sequestration in rocks, I have homework to do on that because I don't know enough to know how permanent it is. I've never had the bubble view in my head, and it makes perfect sense that if you infuse it into the rocks like that, it's going to stay. But the reason it, it gnaws at me just a bit is... The reason I got involved in environmental issues initially back in the late 80s, early 90s was when there there was an efforts to build low-level radioactive dump sites in landfills over aquifers. And uh, the company that was advocating this was telling us they had brand new technology. It wasn't going to leak, et cetera, et cetera. And when I did some research, I found they all leaked and it just became a uh, frightening proposition. So as exciting as this is, I guess when I look at, at underground carbon capture and storage like this, I, I have my own ignorance, my own knowledge gap. And also there's this the fact that this technology is still so expensive and it is still a few decades away. You know, we've got cheaper alternatives now. And the way I see these nature-based solutions being important is by accelerating their use now as quickly as we can, we're preventing the release of emissions, we're removing greenhouse gases, and we're helping to head off a lot of the iterative effects that you mentioned earlier, such as hopefully the thawing of the permafrost and the release of methane. It, it keeps coming back to what we talked about before. We need all of these. And I, I think instead of yeah. prioritizing, what we should do is say, okay, this one's available. We can lower the cap even for this one. Each, each opportunity means we can accelerate our ambition even more. Rather That's than true, but I mean, just to be clear, I think it is this distinction between 
removing carbon for its own sake, which we should absolutely do through all mm-hmm. of these me- methods, and the question of offsets and carbon credits. Because you know, if we, there, I think a really dangerous narrative is all we have today is trees. Let's plant trees, mm-hmm. and these other technologies are decades away. They're right. not decades away, first no. of all, right? So we've been storing carbon in the subsurface for decades, and that's a, a technology that's actually ready to scale. And I think when we compare them on the basis of their durability, it, for for based on everything we know to date. Storing carbon in the subsurface, if it's done properly, is going to persist for a lot longer than storing carbon above ground in ecosystems. Not to say we don't want to store carbon in ecosystems. We want right, to do right. so massively. The other thing I would say is slowing down any of these dangerous feedback loops, whether it's the permafrost or et cetera, that's just about reducing warming. So whether we're taking carbon and putting right. it into forests or into the geology, both of those activities reduce it. And in terms of costs, unfortunately, we're out of time mm-hmm. to only do the cheapest thing first. If we had busily gone along that marginal abatement cost curve since the late 90s, we'd be okay, but we didn't. And so we have to do multiple things at once. We have to counteract cheap emissions with cheap abatement and removals. And we have to deal with expensive emissions like cement and, and aviation with some of the more nascent, more expensive techniques. Because and this maybe bridges to the other topic that I think we wanted to touch on, which was, if we look at these solutions, where are they in their lifespan and how do we accelerate mm-hmm. them towards deployment if, in fact, we've determined that they're safe, that the legitimate concerns have been addressed? And I think the, the answer is that you know, if we don't do as many of the carbon removal pathways that we determine to be safe as possible now, we won't have that set of solutions when we need them. And right. I think what really worries me is I would love to see an immediate cessation of all ecosystem destruction. We should mm-hmm. stop destroying carbon stocks and carbon that's stored in nature. It's terrible. And we should also restore those ecosystems where we can and replant and, and, and bring carbon back into those carbon stocks. But anytime we do that and we're doing it in order to balance a unit of fossil fuel emissions, we've made a very specific deal. We've let somebody take carbon out of the ground where it was safely stored in the form of fossil fuel and burn it and then convert that carbon to above ground biomass. So it's a one direction conversion from fossil fuel into plant matter. And we just can't keep doing that in perpetuity and we can't let people get away with that in perpetuity because they're basically, if you think about oil and gas and and, and heavy emitters, they're generating a lot of value by emitting carbon. And they're getting away with washing their hands of it with a really inexpensive option where the safety of the stored carbon is under question. So I think that's something that I'm really keen on. And if we can make sure that we're massively scaling up our support for nature without always couching it as a method of letting companies and countries and and people get away with burning fossil fuels, then I'll be much more optimistic about the climate fight. And at the same time, the key part is we already know we'll need removals at large scale. That's what the latest IPCC report reaffirmed. Mm -hmm. And we'll need a mix. We'll need the nature-based solutions. We'll need the hybrid solutions. We'll need the engineered solutions. We can't do it with any one set of solutions. So if that's the case, we need to make sure that these solutions get to scale. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to some of these newer techniques, they need support and they need support now, or they never will come down in cost. And... Yeah, I think that's that's a key piece. Yeah, I mean, the assumption there is that these nature-based solutions are going to stay cheap, and they're not, because these low prices really aren't delivering 
the kind of value on the ground that we need to see. Jonah Bush did some interesting analysis on what can happen with red tie payments at different price levels. And at these levels, you're really only helping the people who want to do the right thing and just lack the resources to do it. But as prices go higher and higher up, you start to get into real competition based on opportunity costs, and you can start to drive real change at a larger level. So I don't see these nature-based solutions being cheap for a long time. I think the prices will have to come up and, again, accelerate deeper reductions now while still supporting deployment of those new technologies. If we do our job right, we'll lock up all the nature stuff in five or 10 years, and I can retire in a room full of trees. I mean, these, these markets aren't supposed to be here forever. Also, at the risk of contradicting what I said a few minutes ago, my, my understanding is that the carbon capture technologies haven't really changed much uh, since the 60s. It's the same with the carbon, you know, the, you know, the direct air capture. It's the same stuff they did on the Apollo mission to pull the carbon out of the oxygen in the space capsule so the astronauts don't suffocate. And where the cost reductions are coming now is in the lower costs of renewable energy to drive down the cost of running the machines that suck the carbon out of the air. So the cost is coming down incrementally due to expanding wind and solar. And I know yeah, well, there are these yeah. new technologies. There's like the, you know, I know there's this, this other stuff like crushing rocks. Um, I'm going to do a show on that, just leaving them out in the open. But the direct air capture is the big one. I guess um, I'm kind of rambling, and I think this is more of a question than a comment. Because they got all this price stuff from from webinars, I haven't taken classes on this, so it's not my it's not my area of expertise. When you start to look at all the available subsidies in the United States now, the actual cost to companies, as I understand it, is is actually it's pretty reasonable. I think it was like um, $150 a ton again with the subsidies factors in factored in, which is well within the range that fossil fuel companies can afford and that we can afford as consumers if it's equitably distributed somehow. Um, I don't know, is this, is this um, accurate what I'm saying? Am I on the right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say that within, let's just take one group of technologies for a moment, which is direct air capture, which is in a way plants are also conducting direct air capture. But what we mean when we say direct air capture is engineered solutions, technological solutions that take CO2 molecules out of the air. And there are many types of DAC, right? So there's uh, sorbent-based technologies like Climeworks. There's solvent-based technologies like carbon engineering. I would say that both are at varying degrees of, of readiness to scale up. But there's all kinds of new um, ideas like something called electroswing adsorption or heirloom is, is doing some interesting work with direct air capture through mineralization, other companies like Origin Power. So there's a lot of ideas out there and they're at different stages. I think there's the question of the fundamental underlying technology, and that's a question of learning by research. Do we have the research at the lab scale to prove that something works? And we do this in the life sciences, we do this all across, and it relies on, to, to, to a large degree, government support for early stage R&D. Mm -hmm. once, once a technology has proven through that phase, it, it enters into a new stage in its lifespan where it can go outside of the lab, it can start to be deployed at a pilot scale and then at a more commercial scale. And that's where some of the DAC technologies have gotten to. They're ready to be deployed at a large scale. Yeah. Other, vers other types of DAC are not. And, and I think then you get this amazing phenomenon, which is called learning by doing, which is the yeah. more you do something, more, the more you build, the more the costs go down. And we've seen this happen with solar and wind. And if you think about, you mentioned space travel, if you think about the early solar panels that were put onto the Voyager spacecraft, those cost probably millions and millions of dollars per watt. Whereas now we're building solar panels for 
a fraction of a dollar per watt. Yeah. And that happened not well, it happened partially because of actual fundamental advances in the underlying technology, but largely because of scale up. And so yeah. what we need to do is first we need to ensure that governments and philanthropists and investors and everyone is funneling money into promising research and development. But we can't stop there because a lot of great ideas are going to die there if they don't have the next step. And what does the next step look like? It looks like governments putting in place deployment incentives or scaling incentives. Again, to use the solar in Germany, in the US, in, in the UK, there have been very generous incentives for solar, for wind. And that's what got these technologies to get built at such a large scale. And we need mm -hmm. to do something similar for CDR to actually unlock those cost reductions. So I think for some types of direct air capture, we certainly have sight lines on costs on the order of $100 a ton, somewhere in that range with scale up, but we'll find out, right? And the same thing with other CDR technologies. We need to run this grand experiment in order to ensure that we'll have these solutions ready. I think we're gambling if we're not yeah. um, putting all of these arrows into our quiver and making sure that we have something to do with those last gigatons as we get closer and closer to 2045 and we just really need to be at net zero emissions by mid-century or we're going to have you know, no hope of keeping warming below really dangerous levels. Yeah, we clearly agree on that. And the, and the social cost of carbon is $100 a ton. Anything less than $100 a ton is a deal, the way I look at it. you know. And yeah. $100 a ton, isn't that, it's not that much in the grand I scheme think, of things. Yeah, I think that the... The social cost of carbon concept has come in for a lot of criticism. It requires us to explicitly discount the future and future right. humans and animals and plants. And I think to me, the question is, we have an ultimatum that the Paris Agreement has set us up for. It's we have to get to net zero. We have to achieve a balance of sources and sinks. Mm -hmm. And that means in 2045, if we're still as a planet emitting five gigatons a year, then we need to be doing five gigatons of removals, full stop. If we're emitting more, if we're still emitting 10 gigatons a year, well, then we need to be doing 10 gigatons of removals. So the amount of removals that we're stuck doing is a function of how quickly we get emissions down. And this is why I protest when people say that removals are a form of a moral hazard that deters mitigation. Because actually, the faster we reduce emissions, the less removals we need to do. So the two actually complement each other. And at this stage, we have clear guidance from the IPCC. The pathways that will keep us within a safe climate require gigatons worth of removals, billions of tons. And we're going to have to deliver that through a mixture of soils, forests, mineralization, direct air capture, biomass carbon removal and storage, everything. We're going to mm -hmm. have to throw all those things at the problem so we can make sure we have a safe climate. And then once we're at net zero... We can start to go towards absolute zero. We can say, this isn't good enough. Let's keep finding ways to make steel and cement with zero carbon. Let's find ways to do long haul yeah. air travel. And, and maybe we'll get to a point someday where we don't emit any carbon. And, and therefore, any carbon removal we're still doing is simply for the purpose of running the climate in reverse and, and trying to get to a, a lower temperature. I, I think it's exciting. I think there's a lot we need to do. And it's about following that life cycle of a climate solution, starting from that early stage R&D support, then you need to actually foster that solution with those deployment incentives so it can get to scale. And by the way, you need a light at the end of the tunnel. Like you need a policy when all is said and done that holds us accountable for removing any carbon that we still emit. And I think that's the piece that it's worth talking about now, even though that's quite far in the future is someday 
we need to live in a society where if you emit carbon, you're responsible for removing it. What goes yeah. up must come down. And if we don't have a policy like that, we'll have to keep relying on the political will to keep these deployment incentives in place because removing carbon costs money and it provides benefit to all of us. So we should be willing to pay for that. Right. But right. We, we're going to need government to step in and make sure that happens. Yeah. I completely agree. And one thing I just wanted to draw out a little bit, the moral hazard argument. I, I don't make that argument. That, and that just for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, that's this argument that if you emphasize removals, you're telling people they can just emit whatever they want. And I don't think that's true, especially as prices go up and we hold people accountable. I think removals are just a necessary component of what we have to do. And uh, I think I, the, the argument to me is the more tools we have, the quicker and more certainly we can reduce. So I think we agree on that, too. We do agree on that, and I hope you agree that this show is providing a valuable service. If so, you can help me deliver more and better episodes by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash bionic planet there you can support the show for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap this way if i don't manage to generate an episode in a month you don't get charged and if i manage to crank out a ton of episodes you don't get whacked either the web address again is not the bionic planet website but the patreon website p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com patreon dot com forward slash bionic planet bionic planet no dots or dashes. You can also help others find the show by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Everyone agrees that we need to focus on reductions and removals. Because anything we don't reduce now, we'll have to remove later. Right. So that's the big quandary. And there's right. this analogy that everybody makes. If you heard my last episode with Aaron Bloomgarden, he used this analogy of the bathtub. If you go into the bathroom, water's overflowing. Do you start mopping up or do you turn off the water? We need to get reductions taken care of and we need to get removals on their way. My big fear is that this focus on removals is going to distract from the need to reduce and it's going to create a greater need to remove later. Your fear, though, was that if we focus on reductions now, we're going to delay action on removals, whereas I feel like removals just aren't there yet anyway. So I guess that's the big thing I'm thinking is how, how do we get how do we get reductions now and still get those removals going so that they're there when we need them? It is a real concern. Let's just start mm -hmm. right there and just admit that the idea of a moral hazard, the idea of mitigation deterrence is a mm -hmm. real concern. It's a real threat. And I think there have been a few academics that have even tried to measure it, which is really difficult because you have to attribute why someone did something. But I think one way of thinking about it is that it's not zero sum. Like we need mm -hmm. more climate action on the, on the reduction avoidance side, and we need more climate action on the removal side. And so we actually need to harness more resources so that the total amount of money, attention, energy that we're putting towards climate is even bigger. Like, yeah. I, I think we might be coming from a scarcity mindset because we've spent... 20, for some people 30, mm. for some people 40 years of their lives and their careers, fighting tooth and nail to get people to pay attention to climate. And now all of a sudden people are paying attention. So it's almost like we might be able to shift out of fight or flight mode where 
I have to protect my resources because if anyone else is winning, that means I'm losing. And think more that there are a lot of new philanthropists coming online. There are tech billionaires and millionaires that suddenly want to do good. There are corporations that want to make voluntary commitments. There are countries that have made net zero commitments. So there is more money on the table. There is more ambition and more climate action than ever, for climate action than ever before. So to me, we have to get out of that mindset. We have to start asking for both. The second point I would make is that the two sides of the coin, emission reductions and removals, are not distinct from each other. They're complementary. Mm-hmm. Everyone always says, Removals are a complement, not a replacement for mitigation. Yes, 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 we know that. But what's actually interesting is that they affect each other. So if you're Swiss Re, this massive Swiss Re insurance company, and you've committed to remove every ton of carbon that you emit, remove and store, and you've also committed that you'll do so at a minimum price of 100, a blended price of $100 a ton, well, you are suddenly incentivizing yourself to do all of the internal emission reduction opportunities that cost right. less than $100 a ton. So you've actually used removals as a way of accelerating your own reductions. And right. maybe you won't remove any carbon because you'll say, you know what, it's cheaper for us to do all these reductions. So the two things speak to each other. Reductions and removals are in a conversation. And I think it all comes down to what carbon price are you exposing yourself to in a sense. And then I guess the last point is just the kind of reality, which is that we know we will need and we will want the ability to remove and store carbon at scale in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, depending on which technique mm. we're talking about. And we just won't have those capabilities if we don't start supporting removals now. So right. it's there is a moral hazard in not getting these techniques and technologies ready. And then I guess maybe even a fourth point is that a lot of the same technologies and and processes and techniques that we want to use to reduce emissions have overlapped with removals. So a lot of nature-based applications like blue carbon, which is coastal zone restoration, where you rejuvenate mangroves and you increase the carbon in the sediments, you're accomplishing both emission reductions and removals when you do that. You're protecting an existing carbon stock, that's emission avoidance, and you're enhancing the rate of uptake, and that's a carbon removal. Similarly, if you want to store carbon in subsurface formations like Norway is doing with the Northern Lights Project, they're going to store a mix of carbon down there. They're going to store some carbon that came from CCS, carbon capture and storage, equipped to a Norwegian cement plant, and they're going to take some carbon that was captured directly out of the air. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be a mix of removal and reduction. So any work and any money that the Norwegian government puts into developing that storage infrastructure is a massive boon for both really expensive and important industrial mitigation and really expensive and important carbon removal. The first time I noticed the emphasis on removals over reductions was when Microsoft came out with their big plan at the beginning of last year. And they said, we're going to shift to removals away from reductions. And they created this big stampede toward removals and the supplies weren't there. And so maybe in some ways they may have helped to stimulate this discussion, but they also created an emphasis on companies wanting to buy removals. And I'm hearing this from a lot of people in the business and is that they're Corporate buyers were like, we only want removals. We don't want reductions. Mm -hmm. And that's on the offsetting front. But this kind of false dichotomy emerged. Like the way you're describing is the way I think we all looked at it. Like they're a blend of both. We're gradually moving towards more removals. And then it became cold turkey. Right, right. From your perspective, how did this false dichotomy emerge? First, I saw it was Microsoft. And then on the task force on uh, scaling voluntary carbon markets. They initially wanted to have two different categories 
for reductions in removal. I think that's being preserved, and I sh- I hope so because yeah. that was something I fought for v- mm-hmm. v- vigorously. Because I think uh, I, I think what they can... decided was that removals would be an additional exactly. value. Yep, yeah. it is an additional attribute. You're right. Yeah. Right. So at least they're labeled, and I think there is a dichotomy. Right. These are two different types mm-hmm. of climate benefits, and it is worth separating them. Although it's funny how. At the end of the day, we realize all these distinctions are human-made. Like we're yeah. basically saying, well, if I take the CO two out of a sm- out of a cement smokestack just before it reaches the air, that's an emission reduction. But if right. I wait for the carbon to leave the smokestack and get all mixed up with other nitrogen molecules and become very diffuse, and then I take it out, that's removal. It does describe. Uh, the only difference there is the de- is the level of concentration. It was a lot easier to do it when it was still in the flue yeah. gas. Yeah. So we should have captured it then and there. But how did this come about? I think. What's happening is there may be a, a mix-up w- between emission reduction opportunities behind the meter, like opportunities that a company or an individual has to reduce their own emissions. That's one use of the term emission reductions. And then there's also emission reduction carbon credits, which yeah. are paying someone else to reduce emissions. And I think the stampede is not necessarily away from doing your own emission reductions behind the meter. Maybe people aren't doing those, but everyone says they're doing those or everyone's, everyone admits that they have to do those. It's more just when they are buying carbon credits that they're going to use to neutralize or compensate for their emissions, there is increasingly, or among certain, some groups, a preference for carbon removal credits. There's mm-hmm. a couple reasons for that. One reason is what we laid out in the Oxford Principles for Net Zero Aligned Offsetting, which was we said, I guess at the end state, you need to be using 100% removals. That's what net zero means. Net zero means a balance Mm, of sources, which are emissions, and sinks, which are removals. And so once you reach the final state, you do have to be buying all removals because otherwise it becomes a sort of game of hot potato. You buy someone's Mm -hmm. emission reduction credit, they buy someone else's emission reduction credit, and at the end of that chain, someone is left holding the bag and has to remove a ton. Right. So that's one reason. I think another reason is that as a gross generalization, the types of activities and projects that generate carbon removals, people perceive them to be of more credibility or more rigor than avoided emission opportunities. And some of that is a sort of artifact of the fact that avoided emission credits have had a long history. So there's been a lot of chances for people to mess up. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, the comparison is a bit unfair. And some of it is a bit structural because whether you're looking at removal credits or avoided credits, you need to assess this risk of non-additionality. You need to say, would this have happened but for what I just did? It's actually easier in a lot of cases to, to establish that baseline with carbon removal because the baseline is usually nothing's happening or the forest is growing at the you know predetermined rate that we're quite confident of. So with avoided emission credits, you have to come up with more assumptions to paint a picture of the future world that you think would have happened. Okay, India would have built five coal-fired power plants instead of three, or the forest would have been chopped down in this year and this year. Whereas with the removals, you don't have to make as many assumptions, so you just have fewer uncertainties. But in the Oxford Principles, we tried to make it clear with that two-by-two matrix that you've got removals and you've got avoided emissions, but you've also got different types of storage. You've got shorter-lived storage and Mm longer-lived storage. And I think that's actually a more interesting distinction personally. And I think uh, the kind of stampede towards removals misses the fact that there are plenty of emission reduction opportunities with really solid storage. And there are plenty of removal opportunities where the science just really isn't there to prove that the carbon is going to stay locked up for long enough. 
these are all messy solutions to a wicked problem. And right, um, and, but you're couple, right. There is this there is this kind of zeitgeist around removals, and maybe it's because we're nerds and we're here. We're like operating in a certain group of folks. I definitely have seen that happen over the last year, and I think it's causing some corporate buyers to get a little nervous and to say, "What are we missing here? Do we need to just be buying removals?" Mm-hmm. And I think there's more nuance to it than that, and we definitely don't want to create more of a scarcity mindset or this um, fear of zero sum. Yeah. And I think I should do a show only on additionality. I know you were on the Nori podcast. I've, I've had some discussions with Christoph over there and they, they almost don't believe in financial additionality at all. Wow. I mean, well, you know, I used to be much more aggressive on financial additionality than I am, but I'm changing on that, especially where things like improved forest management are concerned. I'm not sure if we'll have time to get into that, but I wanted to bring up something else that you touched on, which is this question of when is a reduction internal, when is it external? And you might not want to comment on this because it's really about the SBTI, but I think that the science-based targets initiative, the SBTI, is creating something of a mess with the direction they're heading on this distinction uh, being focused not on a smokestack, but on whether a reduction is inside a company's supply chain. And they're because they're saying, as I understand understand that they're saying, okay, let's say a company does deforestation in an area. Then they go in and they reforest themselves. That's considered mitigation. Um, I forget the term they use. It's like, but they consider that like a reduction um, as opposed to an offset. Um, And I forget the term they use for you know, compensated reduction or compensate compensated or something, but you know, because because to them that's within their own supply chain. Mm. But if they buy offsets to compensate for the damage they did, it's not counted towards a science-based target because they're using something again outside their supply chain. Whereas to me, that's a case where you should go with an offset because there's more rigor involved in a verified afforestation reforestation project outside. Your own supply chain, uh, which we touched on in my last episode with uh, Gabriel Eikhoff. Just because we've seen this in the U.S., there was, uh, I don't know if you've followed mitigation banking in the U.S. For wetlands. Yeah. This is the idea of a oh, Walmart is going to dis- destroy some right. wetlands. So we'll play, we'll, re- we'll restore wetlands elsewhere and we'll consider that like a one for one. Right. And, and, and in the old days, they could have done either permittee responsible mitigation or they could have paid a mitigation banker, or they could have done in-lieu permitting where an NGO would come in and do it. And around 2008, the Army Corps issued a preference for mitigation banking with in-lieu fee permitting coming next, and the last one being permittee responsible mitigation. The reason being that these you know, permittees doing it themselves, they would destroy a, a functional wetland and they would replace it with a cosmetic pond. Now, they were hiring landscape architects to come in rather than ecological restoration. And so mm. doing it outside where you had a mitigation banker and you had much more verification, it, it, it actually ended up delivering better outcome over the long term. And it seemed to me that SBTI is almost encouraging companies like Walmart who do have impacts on the ground to fix it themselves and say, okay, we fixed that. And That's we- a great point and a serious loophole in a sense. And mm-hmm. but. To me, maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here, but doesn't there, there seems to be an obvious or an easy fix, which is SBTI and others could make it best practice that a group like Walmart uses the same protocol that the voluntary carbon market yep. uses to, to do this to approve their own project. And we could have a new form, a new, app, a new way of applying carbon credit methodologies, which is where 
you apply it, you generate the credits, and you retire them internally. They never enter a marketplace. Right. And that, that has some costs associated with it. And maybe no, there's just, like yeah, a lighter yeah. touch version. Maybe, I don't know. And that is what we're seeing even in the mitigation banking sector is some companies are using mitigation banks to come in and do the permittee responsible mitigation so that they can do it, everything, everything done right rather than trying to do it themselves. You can find out more about that in episode 45 called Nature Paid on Delivery from 2019. You can also check out my most recent episode prior to this one, episode 68, where Gabriel Eikhoff and I discuss Lestari Capital's Sustainable Commodities Conservation Mechanism, which also brings carbon market rigor to restoration, as does the newer Rimba Collective. One of the infuriating ironies about climate coverage is the tendency of some reporters to harp on the uncertainties around carbon markets while ignoring the reason these markets exist, namely because nothing else was working, the modeling and rigor of carbon markets blows philanthropic efforts out of the water. Despite the uncertainties, which are largely quantified and fading through a process of evolution. Now that's nothing against philanthropy. I ask for money on every show, and I'd love for some millionaire to give me a few hundred thousand dollars to do this show right. It's just that when it comes to driving change in the land sector at the scale that's needed, philanthropy doesn't cut it. The cynic in me even thinks that's why some NGOs don't like carbon markets. After all, blink checks are fun, and transparency can be a double-edged sword. While I'm on the subject of money, a reminder again that if you like the show, you can help me deliver more and better episodes by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. If you want to sponsor the show, put your name on it as a business, or just offer support as a philanthropist, I am now fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means your support is tax deductible, and you can email me on that one, steve at bionic-planet.com. Getting back to my conversation with Eli, we were talking about the philosophical differences among different groups and initiatives within the climate space. And that's another thing with all these pieces. It's like we've got WRI working on the greenhouse gas protocol update and SBTI. And mm. to the insiders, they know what these groups are, but to everyone else, they're like, what is this and, and why should I care? And I think one thing we should realize is that these processes are influenceable. If you have the bandwidth, we all are one degree away from people who are on these boards making these decisions. It's just people doing yeah. their best. And I think when science is on your side, when logic is on your side, it's hard for them to say no. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of them are just, they're new to this and they're trying to do the best. Another thing you mentioned that I thought was very interesting and very important is this idea that we are coming from a, a perspective of scarcity. And I, I know myself banging my head against the wall for all these years. And you kind of go, okay, meet people where they're at. We can't over overplay our hand. We'll scare people off. And I think we need to say, okay, this is, the enemy is in retreat in a sense, or in the sense that we've got, everyone's on our side now. We have to just make sure we're going in the right direction. And this this brings up this whole issue of low-hanging fruit, clear it out, get it done, and then move on to the hard stuff immediately. But you can talk to in a second. I just want to make sure before I forget what I wanted to bring up was we did a, a study when I was still at Ecosystem Marketplace. We did this analysis of corporate buyers on the voluntary markets. And one of the interesting things that we found was that the companies that bought offsets voluntarily, not necessarily on the compliance market, although I'm sure it applies there, but companies that were buying voluntarily were getting a bad rap. It was like, oh, they're buying their way out of their obligations. Well, what we found was that they were also most likely 
to have a real structured methodological approach to internal reductions. And I talked to a few people who were at some of these companies. Um, there was the big logistics company. I forget the names. One thing they had mentioned that seemed pretty consistent is once we had an internal price on carbon, because a lot of these companies would have maybe the carbon, the market price might have been $5 a ton, but they would have an internal price of like $25. Once they had that price, all of a sudden, these hidden emissions were everywhere and they started to realize what they could do. And it, and, and it goes to what you were saying. There's, there is evidence that when companies have a high price on carbon, maybe they think they're going to buy their removals at that price, but then they suddenly realize what they can do internally and it just drives that down. So there's an argument for a clear price on carbon and, and aggressive reductions across the board. I agree with that. But I do worry about the kind of thinking of we clear out the cheap stuff and then things get more and more expensive. It's like if we had taken that approach starting in 2000 or starting in 1990 and like slowly ratcheted up the carbon price, we wouldn't be where we are today. We'd be in a much, much better position. Mm. Now it's like all hands on deck. I liked your metaphor of the enemy is in retreat. We need to drive them over the hill and down the other side, the enemy. And that means like thinking that any energy that we spend fighting each other is energy not spent fighting the yeah. enemy. Yeah. Now, sometimes we do need to fight each other because sometimes people do unconstructive or disingenuous things. And we see this in the voluntary carbon market all the time with carbon credits that really aren't doing a heck of a lot. And I think sometimes it's out of totally good intentions. And so I think it's, there's a way to engage with those folks that isn't saying your offsets suck, what are you doing? There's a more proactive approach to say there's problems with the carbon benefit of your carbon credits but you're also providing all these other co-benefits. So let's talk about other creative ways to finance that same activity under a different package as one idea. But anyway, I think this idea of, yeah, keeping the enemy in retreat, recognizing that we should just be fighting for more and more climate action. And unless the activities someone is doing are like totally disingenuous, fraudulent, or actively harming people or the environment in some way, then I think people should put their heads down and focus on promoting their thing. Yeah. Uh, ideally. All the practices that improve soil usually in the long term improve yields and they make they pay for themselves. Improved forest management doesn't necessarily. Mm. So I think there is a stronger additionality argument. There's gray areas where I think we're never going to agree. When I talk about low-hanging fruit, I think a lot of it is just getting stuff out lock these forests up, get people locked into these sustainable practices for a while. It does have a lot of conditionality to it and uncertainty, but the uncertainty is kind of quantified and you know, we, we've eliminated one problem for a while. I, don't know if you I want definitely to... see the appeal in that argument. I think mm. I, I do see that appeal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's an ongoing thing. I think it, it goes to the complexity of these issues. There, there's always going to be right. disagreement. On, on... But it's that it's that tension between just doing something and getting moving versus the being more precautionary. Because I think I do see that it's very enticing, that idea of here's a thing that we can just check off. Yeah. Like I think about it, my dad ran for many years at energy auditing and like home restoration company. So it was like, what's bad about your building envelope? How can we seal it up? It's often so simple. It's just putting in baseboard insulation or, or sealing things a little bit more tightly. And in an American home in, in a state like Maine, cold New England state, that can have massive energy savings. And it's like, why hasn't every single home done that? It's so, yeah. it, it's such a, it pays for itself so quickly and then you can get into similar conversations about things like air source heat pumps. And sometimes it just gets infuriating where you're like, why hasn't that thing already been done for every single possible right. application it could be done at? 
And then you start to say, okay, it's about it's about people and how messy they are and how they don't like to change and how yeah, there's financing <laughs> barriers. And yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing how complex people are. And sometimes we forget that it's not homo economic as the, the economists joke. It's actually yeah. people. And yeah, going full steam ahead with improved forest management, we would learn something. That's one way of looking at it is like, we can do some of these things, but let's like let's at least have on the horizon a point in time where we're going to stop and reassess. And let's make sure yeah. that the people doing the reassessment, the people checking the homework are not the students. Yeah. And and you've got some fail-safe in place to say, okay, listen, we've been doing improved forest management or we've been doing soil carbon for three years now. And mm-hmm. at a meta level, here's, the, here's what the impacts have been and here's the degree to which we can attribute those impacts to the carbon credits. Should we keep doing this or is this the wrong policy approach? So we should think about it more like policies that you test out rather than right. a marketplace that's going to exist forever. And that, I understand, is difficult because it's hard for an investor to put money into a company if they don't think that the marketplace will be stable and secure. Eli Mitchell Larson wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. And before I go, I'd like to ask one more time how you like the show. If you like it and you want more of it, you can make that happen by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's patreon.com forward slash bionic planet there you can support the show for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap i'm consistently in the top 20 earth science podcasts worldwide and if you want to sponsor the show put your name on a few episodes with no strings regarding content send me an email and we can talk you can reach me at steve at bionic planet.com that's steve at bionic-planet.com. And that about wraps up today's show. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Bionic Planet.